Well, good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. If you guys have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, if you turn to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. So just after those Gospels, we'll have you 1 Corinthians. Uh, as John mentioned earlier, we are committed to working through the Scriptures. Um, each week we've been working through Corinthians for several weeks now, and we come to another text here. So you know that when we're, when we're bringing the Word here this morning that we're not making up these topics um, we're just handling things as they come in the Word. And so our commitment is to the Word. Whatever it says, we want to be saying that as well. And so our authority is not from ourselves, but it's from this Word and what it says. And so if you guys have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you'll see that this is all about sexual relations in marriage. And so if you came here as a guest or whatever and didn't know what we were going to be talking about, like, welcome to, to this. Now, some of the song suggestions that I, that I sent out to, to Jay this week were not taken up and used, so... Um, he spared you for some of that, but we, we were joking around this week about some of that and even some of the titles that this sermon could have, could have had, but we kept it on an easy playing field and, and palatable for all. So welcome. We're going to talk about sex and marriage. Um, let's read this passage and then we'll, we'll pray as, before we get into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now concerning the, the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Let's pray. Father, we know that when we come to this, this topic, that it's a sensitive topic and that every single one of us comes into this, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're divorced or somewhere in between all those realities, Lord, we have baggage here. We have hurts here. We have wounds here. And so we're just asking for your grace, that you'd help us to sort through all those things and see your word clearly, because your word is a, an expression and a reflection of who you are and your character and your greatness. And so may we see your good nature, may we see your good design in marriage and in sex, and may we, as your children, humbly submit ourselves to it. Father, that's what we ask every time we come to your word, but we ask it again today, that you would help us to see your word and see you clearly that we might live as your children the way you have designed us to live. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Through, throughout history, sex has taken on many different thoughts. There have been many different theories, many different uh, opinions given about what sex is and how it is, uh, uh, interacts with humanity. Some have said that, that sex is a god, it's to be worshipped, and so you see all through the Old Testament, all through uh, some major ancient uh, um, uh, civilizations, this God that is sex, there's fertility gods and fertility goddesses, they're all over the place. And so some have seen sex as this, this kind of God to be worshipped. Others have seen sex as this just natural appetite. It's like, it's like eating and drinking. You, you eat and you drink and you have sex. This is, this is your animal appetites, right? And so just indulge in whatever way that you feel is right because this is a natural thing. Others have said that, that, that sex is kind of this, this lowly thing. 
That, that it's, it's, for, it's for those, those people that are, are giving themselves to things that are, are low in life and that we have a, a better way of doing things. We have a higher way of thinking. And so the, the thing is said about sex that it's, it's degrading, it's, it's dirty. And likely many of us who, who grew up in the church, this is kind of the, the area where the church would have spoken from, that, that this activity is it's, it's low and it's degrading and it's dirty. Even today, we have this, this kind of new thought that, that sexuality is this form of self-expression. It's a form of self-fulfillment. And so you find yourself here in these acts. And so when we come to this topic, we know that we have, we have much to sort through if we're going to see to what the Scripture has for us. We have to sort through thoughts. We have to sort through these ideas. We have to sort through these attitudes. We have to sort through these hurts. We have to sort through these wounds to, to really see what the Bible says. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is one who's coming and he's speaking life. He's speaking truth into a sex-crazed culture. That sexual immorality is rampant in the city of Corinth. Maybe more than what we have rampant in our uh, nation today. It's, it's a huge problem. And so what he does in this sex-crazed culture, in this, with sexual immorality, going crazy within the city and even within the church, Paul comes and he speaks truth to this church to help them sort through what's going on here and how to go about this. And so Paul starts out with 1 Corinthians, giving them how to have sexual relations within marriage. What does this look like? And the main point that he's trying to get before us is that we as, as married people, if you are married, we are to fight the tempter, fight temptation in marriage with the good gift of sexual relations. And so Paul speaks this truth into this, this culture, to this church who's struggled with sexual immorality, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it's not going away if you see 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So he turns his matters, he turns this book to, to some of the things that they were questioning about. And so verse 1, he goes into something that they had written to him. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote... And he says, it is good for a man, for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you are using the ESV or if you see this, the translation online, you will see there are quotation marks around, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The reason that is, is that it's thought that that is a quotation from the Corinthian church, that they had said this, this was their idea. So when you see that, I don't think that Paul is giving his full affirmation to that statement. He's saying, this is what they are saying. This is what you have been saying about this. And so now uh, Paul is going to comment on it. So this is Corinthian language. He's not giving full affirmation to it's not good to have, for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. We'll, we'll see as he addresses that. But this is the Corinthians way of talking about it. This is what they have said. And so he's writing uh, in response to that. And he, he answers their, their question, as it were, their, if we were to see it in line of a question, he answers their sentiment behind this, this quote that he gives. And, and if you look in verse two, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now we have to remember the context that we're, we're dealing with this, right? Right from the beginning, I want you to know, and we'll see this, it'll be more clear as we go down, that, that Paul is addressing marriage. He's addressing those who are married. Now, that's really important because you can see this text in a different light if you don't know that that's where he's coming from. He is addressing marriage. He is addressing those who are married. And so he says to them, you who are married, because of temptation, each man is to have his own wife and each wife is to have her own husband. So to the married, this is what you're to have. And you are to have one another. That's to have sexual relations with one another. This is what he's getting at in verse 2. Now, now notice, this is kind of a side note, but it's still important for our day especially. 
Notice what he says when he says each man and each woman. Even within, he's not addressing this full theology of marriage and sex, but even within this, this short little verse, what he is saying is he's upholding the definition of marriage that has been true from the beginning. That this is one man and that this is one woman together. That they are to be a union. They are to be united And so this isn't a new idea according to the scripture, but it's something that we definitely need to make sure that we're clear on in our culture and in our day, that it is one man and one woman, and that is what marriage is. It's between one man and one woman. But but once again, he's addressing the married and marriage in their culture. So he doesn't say, because of temptation, get married. No, he's already addressing marriage, and so he doesn't need to say that. He says, because of temptation, each man needs to have his own wife. So he's not saying, if you struggle with sexual temptation, then you need to get married. That marriage is the answer to that sexual temptation. Now he already spoke a little bit to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you struggle with sexual immorality, you need to flee from sexual immorality. He's going to cover a little bit more about singleness and sexual immorality and sexual temptation here in chapter 7. But right here, that's not what he's doing. So he's not saying, if you're single and you're struggling with sexual temptation, the answer for you is to get married. That's not necessarily true, and it's not what he's addressing. He is saying, if you are married, this is how you are to fight temptation in your marriage. If you're not married, he says, flee sexual immorality. And he'll speak to it more coming up in chapter 7. So he's not just offering reasons to get married. He's not just saying, because of temptation, you need to get married. He's not giving a full theology of what that means here. But he's addressing those who are married. And so what he's arguing for is sexual relations in marriage that serves to battle the temptation that he spoke of in verse 2. So he's not saying that if you're married, you need to have your wife, and the wife needs to have her husband, that that's going to cancel out all sexual immorality. But it is a way to fight against that. So he says, have your wife. Same with the husband, or same with the wife. Have your husband. Each one of you have one, and that's have sexual relations with one another. For, for some reason, within the Corinthian church, there was this idea that in marriage that they could be abstinent, that, that they could separate from one another. There was this idea going among them that, that, was, that was actually being practiced. They were practicing within their marriages. They were practicing abstinence, saying, as Paul said in verse 1, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so that makes us think, like, what's, what's the situation here that is, that is causing this? What's the situation that is bringing about this kind of idea? Why would married people say it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Why would they say that? It's possible that there's this ascetic view among them that kind of said that idea, what we've thought of earlier, that, that sex is kind of this lower thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm set upon the purposes of God now, so I have a holier calling than to have sexual relations in marriage, and so I'm going to give myself to that calling and, and neglect this so it won't bring me down. So there, that could have been a possibility. They're giving themselves to the higher good, thinking that maybe sex was this lower act. That's a possibility. There's, there's kind of maybe this libertarian thought that could be a, a possibility too, that, that they're saying, everything is lawful for me. They don't want to be contained by anything. They don't want anything to strap them down. They're free. They're liberated. They don't need a a marriage to tie them down. And so they would say, maybe even if we are married, that doesn't mean I have to practice anything. I'm not a slave to that. I'm not entrapped to that. I'm free to do as I will. Everything is lawful for me. Or perhaps they're just following Paul. They see Paul in his life as an example. Paul is even saying, you need to follow me as I follow Christ. They see Paul, you're single, Paul. You're you're not married. Maybe we should just live like you. Maybe that makes us a little bit holier. Maybe that was the steps that we need to take in our holiness and in our godliness. So the, the specific reason for this question 
quote that he gives in verse 1 isn't too critical. What is critical is that that quote, that idea, that sentiment was causing problems among their marriages. And so Paul addresses this. That, that abstinence in marriage was driven by some wrong theology that Paul is correcting. And so they had this wrong view of what sex is and what, how it's supposed to interact within marriage. Now, if you guys have seen the, the, the movies that are really popular right now, The Hunger Games, and the second Hunger Games, or read the book, and the second Hunger Games... Um, Catching Fire, uh, the, the main uh, characters, Katniss and Peeta, they, they are from a poor district where there's hardly any food to go around. And actually, Katniss is well known for being able to go out into the woods and, and kill food to, to provide for her family. And the capital is this strong government that, that basically has everybody else at their hands and feet. They're giving them what they want or withholding what they want. They completely have their thumb over every single other population throughout the nation. And Katniss and, and Pete are taken to the capital, and they're taken to these parties that are paraded around as these champions, as these people that have won the horrific Hunger Games, right? And, and they're taken around as celebrities to these parties. And at these parties, these people from a district that is really poor, that has no food, that families and people are starving just because the capital won't let them have more food, see all these people amongst the capital eating and giving themselves over to tons of food and tons of drink. They're just completely filling themselves up. And Katniss and Peta find themselves like uh, caught up in this. They're, they're hungry. They haven't tasted some of these foods. And so they're giving themselves to all these foods and all these drinks. And at some point in the party, Katniss finds herself like too full to have any more. And that's when one person from the capital says, well, that's why we drink this. And he, he hands her a drink. And this drink is given to everybody at the capital. It's at every party so that they can drink it and go vomit all the food that they've had so that they can keep eating all the time. And of course, you could see if someone was from a, a poor background, someone who's had problems with, with seeing their family starve, with seeing their friends and, and neighbors, people around them struggling just to even have food, how this would be absurd, how this would be offensive to have food. I mean, what's the point of food? It's not just so that we can eat it and enjoy the taste. It provides something that keeps us going. People in the districts knew that because... They were dying because they didn't have it. And here in the capital, they're spitting it out. They're throwing it up just so they can enjoy more and different flavors. It's absurd. C.S. Lewis, he, he, likes, he likens sex with, or marriage without sex to having food without swallowing it and digesting it. It's absurd and crazy. It's just eating food and then taking it right back up again. Far from having a, a negative view of what sex is, Paul is a proponent for it and actually commanding it within marriage. It's absurd to be married and to not have sexual relations. This is what he's driving at. This is what C.S. Lewis was saying at. To have marriage without sex is like tasting food without swallowing or digesting it. And so Paul strongly commands not to do that. And so this what Paul does here is he puts sex in its proper context, in its proper place. This existed before the fall, before sin entered the world. This was something that God created and gave to the human race. God gave to Adam and Eve. And so it's not dirty, it's not degrading, it's not low. And so you don't have a holier life because you don't have sexual relations, Paul. This is what he's getting at. And so the church needs to do a better job in our day of, of not letting the culture define, not letting the culture taint, not letting the culture hijack the view of, of sex. This is, this is God's creation, and if it's God's creation, then the church has the right from his word to speak on it 
And so we need to be champions of a biblical and healthy view of what sex is. It's a good gift given by God, and Paul is upholding it and even commanding it here in 1 Corinthians. And so there's no problem with sex. If you ever thought coming into this that sex is the problem, it's not. The problem is the context. See, sexual relations, as Paul is clear here, are meant to be happening in marriage. See, marriage is the context that this is to take place. And Paul wants to be very clear about this. Marriage, it's more than just this commitment to one another physically. Marriage is a commitment to all, from all of yourself to all of somebody else and hoping it's reciprocated. You're giving your, yourself wholly to another person and them giving themselves wholly to you. It's a covenant commitment of all that we are. It's a binding commitment. And so one pastor and author says, according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates the place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. It is your covenant renewal service. And Paul is saying that sex is for marriage, but sex is for marriage. He, he wants to stress both those. It's within marriage, but sex ought to be happening within marriage. It's part of the maintenance and renewal of this covenant commitment that you've made to one another. The Corinthians, they, they wanted abstinence in their marriage for any number of reasons. And Paul comes up to them and says, no, stop withholding yourselves from one another. This is not how it's supposed to be. There ought to be sexual relations within marriage. Abstinence in marriage is inappropriate. And so the application for us, it's pretty simple. If you're married... Continue in sexual relations with your own spouse. Renew that covenant that you've made with your own spouse. Reject abstinence and see sex as this good gift within marriage. And many of you are like, shutting your Bible right there. We'll call it a day. Let's go home with that. <laughs> Paul's got more to say to us, though. As he continues to drive home why each spouse should have the other, he starts to give us the, the whys to this, right? So let's look in verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Now, Paul takes it a step further than he has before. It says should here in the translation, the, the, the force behind it is more of a must. It's a must. You must do these things. So this is a strong command from God to have sex within marriage. And so why does Paul say this? If you continue on in verse 4, why must they give one another their conjugal rights? And he says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And so within marriage, each partner, each spouse has authority to claim the other's body for sexual gratification. This is what Paul is getting at. Now, once again, notice here what's going on. There is no mention here of procreation. Now, this isn't a full theology of sex and marriage, once again. But there is no mention of procreation here. That doesn't seem to be the idea at all. And so what we have to say is that there is a place for sex to be not just about procreation, but to be about pleasure as well. If you look in Proverbs chapter 5, it's up on the screen for you as well. It's the same idea from the Proverbs. Verse 15 says, Drink from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and, let not, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. It, 
What Proverbs is getting at there is that it's a pleasurable thing. You're giving yourselves to one another wholly and that there's pleasure in it. Song of Solomon is this amazing book about this rejoicing and delight in all that sex is offered to these partners in marriage. And so sex isn't to just be practiced, but it's to be rejoiced in. It's to be taken pleasure in. This is a gift from God. And so each spouse has authority over the other's body. There's some equality here, but there's some reciprocation here. Each one of you has this right and has this obligation. And so that's the language he uses here. You're indebted to one another physically. You're indebted to one another. You are to have one another. Each is to have his wife and her husband. And so look at what Paul does. What he's saying here is he he doesn't say, don't deprive your spouse. He doesn't say, come and demand your right. Come as a spouse and say, you are, I have authority over you. You owe me. Let's do this. He's not saying to demand your rights. That's not what he's getting at. Paul's emphasis is not you owe me. His emphasis is I owe you. It's a flipping of it. And so in marriage, we don't have the right to do whatever we want with our bodies. And that is a myth throughout all of our culture that you can do whatever you want with your body, which is completely crazy in almost every aspect. But especially in marriage, you don't have the right to do whatever you want. You've given yourself to one another. That's what it means to be married. You're not just giving yourself physically, but you're giving your whole self to one another. And so you don't have a right over your own body fully. You don't have the final say on whatever happens to your body. Our bodies were bought with a price, and we're to honor God with our bodies. And a way to honor God with our bodies within marriage is to have sex in marriage. And so as a spouse, we don't come and demand our rights, but we stand ready to give our body for the good of the other. This is the emphasis Paul is making. And so he's saying that our bodies and sex are are not meant primarily for personal fulfillment, but for fulfilling the spouse, for being about owing them and making them rejoice. So sex, so often in our culture and even within the church, these are all the jokes that it's the husband's privilege and it's the wife's obligation, right? And normally, typically speaking, the, the man has a higher sex drive than the woman. And so this is how the joke goes. But that kind of thought has to be thrown out. We got to cast that thought aside because that is not a gospel-centered thought. It's the husband's responsibility and privilege and it's the wife's responsibility and privilege. It's both of them. This is a biblical view of what sex is in marriage. And so one, Dr author has said in your own marriage if it's no far more often than it's yes then you have a foundational problem you need to explore this is a symptom of an underlying difficulty and the difficulty is is that you think that you have authority over your own body that you don't stand ready to serve one another that's not just a marital problem that's going to cause problems in so many other areas of your life as well and so we got to be these spouses that are not ready to demand our right before the other. We ought to be these spouses that are ready to give up our right for the good of the other. Not saying, you owe me. Give me what I'm owed, but I owe you. How can I serve? How can I love? How can I help you here? Husbands, we shouldn't be known as being the demanders. And wives, we shouldn't be known as being the deniers. We should all take up this responsibility and this privilege that God has given us within marriage. As one pastor and author continues to say, Paul is telling married Christians that mutual, satisfying sexual relations must be an important part of their life together. In fact, this passage indicates that sex should be frequent and reciprocal. One spouse was not allowed to deny sex to the other. And some of you guys are thinking, even right now, like, is that really there? Is that really in 1 Corinthians? 
Did Paul really say, yes, he did. Like, God is good. Am I right? I should have had more amens from this morning than I've had ever before, like amassed. (laughs) He really said that. This is really true for all of us who are married. Now, as we continue on, Paul does give one exception and one concession to this command to have sexual relations. If you look in verse 5. He says, don't deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And he says, as a concession, not a command, I say this. And so he upholds the command, don't deprive one another, have sexual relations within marriage, but he gives this one exception. Now notice the language, perhaps do this. This is it's most definitely a, an exception, a concession given here. This is not to be the rule. He is just giving one exception, possible exception to, to the command, strong command from God to have sexual relations within marriage. And he says, even in this command, there are requirements for this command. So what are the requirements? He says, this is by agreement. And so both of these, both of the partners, both spouses are coming to this agreement. We agree to withhold for a time. But that comes to the second requirement is that it's limited. There's a set time here. It's a limited amount of time. And that, in fact, the, the thrust of the text is that it's for a short amount of time, not a prolonged amount of time. And then even that, it's given for the purpose of prayer. So it's not just do whatever you want, be abstinent for as long as you want, and do whatever you want during that time. No, he says... If you both agree for a limited amount of time and you're devoting yourselves to prayer, then that is a possible, a possible, perhaps you could do this. Perhaps that is an exception for you who are married to have some abstinence in your marriage. But this is done that the couple may devote themselves to prayer. But notice again, as he says in verse 6, this is not a command. And so if you in your marriage have thought to yourself, man, I have never remained abstinent for the purpose of devoting myself to prayer, then you're okay. You're not in disobedience to Scripture. This is a concession. This is something that perhaps may happen. And so if you've never done that, that's okay. It's not a command. In fact, he, he kind of starts to go in the other way with it at all. You don't have to do this. So in, in light of, of their negative view of sex, perhaps even people saying, I do want to devote myself to prayer. There's a holy Joe within a marriage and one spouse is saying like, man, I don't want to give myself to that. I want to give myself to prayer. I'm holier than other people and we're holy in our, holy in our, in our relationship and so we don't have sex so we can give ourselves to prayer. Paul says no. Paul says this is possible for a short amount of time. So in light of their negative views of these things in, in sex and in marriage, Paul says You don't prohibit sexuality within your marriage. And sex doesn't prohibit true spirituality. He doesn't say, you must do this if you're going to be holy. You must do this if you're going to be a godly spouse. You must withhold and give yourselves to a time of prayer. He doesn't say that. And so that means that true spirituality can be found fully, holiness can be found fully within sexual relations in marriage. And in fact, Paul is very clear that this abstinence is to be limited And then if it's not limited, it can cause problems. So you look at the end of verse 5 again. Come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He commands them, if you do this, if you have perhaps done this, come together again. This is a concession once again. Come together. So don't practice this abstinence for long periods of time. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you. Sexual relations within marriage is a means for battling temptation. As one pastor and author says, faith wields the weapon of sexual intercourse against Satan, which is an awesome statement right there. 
A married couple gives a severe blow to the head of that ancient serpent when they aim to give as much sexual satisfaction to each other as possible. Is it not a mark of amazing grace that on top of all the pleasures that the sexual side of marriage brings, it also proves to be a fearsome weapon against our ancient foe? And again, we have to say, is that really there? And yes, it is. Like God is really that good to us. And so for those who are married, Paul is saying that sexual relations within marriage, they're a good thing, they're God-ordained, God-ordained means of fighting sin. And so take up the battle, fight against the tempter and sin. I mean, if you're going downrange into a fight and bullets are soaring all around you, don't you think you'd feel a little bit more comfortable if you had a bulletproof vest on? That doesn't mean that you won't get hurt, doesn't mean that problems won't happen, but it means you feel a little bit more protected, that the enemy's going to have to be a little bit more specific with how he targets you, because that spot isn't as vulnerable as it was. And the reality from all of Scripture, whether you're married or not, is that we are downrange in a fight. We are in a battle. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not even just the physical world that we're dealing with here. This is reality, and we like to avoid it, but it's true from Scripture. We have an enemy that the Scripture says is kind of like a lion prowling around. He's seeking someone to be friends with. No, he's seeking someone to devour. He wants to destroy. This is why the enemy has come, to kill and to steal and destroy. And so we want to make sure that when we go out into the fight, that we have all that we need in the fight because we are downrange. And for those who are married, sexual relations is a way of fighting against this temptation. It's a way of kind of putting on that bulletproof vest, putting on that body armor as you send one another out. It doesn't cancel out all the power. It doesn't cancel out all the effect of sensual, sexual temptation. But it does help keep some harm from coming. It does help fight. It lessens the impact of those things. And so don't send your spouse downrange without protecting them. This is what Paul is getting at. Husbands and wives, wake up to the reality that you are in a battle. And you can be sure that the enemy who's prowling around definitely wants to destroy the family and take out your marriage. And so come together as one and fight against the tempter because he's on the prowl. And he's targeting marriage. Look around us. Like this is what is disintegrating. And it's causing all sorts of problems. So we need to be aware that there's temptation and it's real and it's not just flesh and blood. We have in our day and time internet and access to the web all the time. Not just computers at home, but we have devices that we carry around 24-7. Most of you don't, you're closer to your phone than you are your spouse most of the time. It doesn't leave your side ever. It's always with you. And on that phone, you have access to all sorts of horrific things. Good things, but also horrific things. So much so that New York Times says it, but everybody knows it, that porn is easier to see, order, and get than a pizza. It is easier for you to look at a pornography site than it is to order a pizza from Domino's. That's, how, that's the temptation that we face in our day. So wives, you need to be aware of this. This is a, a huge temptation for men because they're more visual, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't go both ways. So be aware that this is a temptation. This is a pitfall. Don't go there. Set up parameters for yourself to not go there. And with those same devices, we can do something else. We can go and we can get chick flicks and we can get romance novels that are just as heated as some of the other things that we've, we wouldn't want to see or let our kids see. And these, there's no doubt that there's a reason why romance novels are bestsellers. They're, they're, they're getting hot and heavy and they're doing it for a reason. There, there's a temptation there. And, and every temptation goes this way. It's trying to usurp God's design. So what's God's design? That within marriage, you give yourself fully to one another. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, you're giving yourself fully to one another. And what do these temptations do? They try to separate out, separate out one of those portions. And so you're, you're tempted to give yourself physically to something, but not in any other way. 
or you're tempted to give yourself emotionally to something, but not in any other way. And do you see why this is a temptation? Because this, this requires much less effort. If I could just give myself physically to somebody and not invest in all the rest of it, man, that makes me feel good because that's just filling in my selfish desires. And this is how temptations go. They appeal to our selfishness. They say you can have the excitement without the work. You can have the good without the baggage. And the reality within a fallen world is that that's not true. And it always leads to more and more destruction. So from TV to movies, from commercials to billboards, our senses are being bombarded with this sexual message. We are being bombarded with sexual temptation all around us. And what we do in our marriages can help us fight against these temptations. It helps us fight this battle. It's not my word. This is what Paul is saying. What we do physically within our marriage matters. It helps us fight here. And so what's the answer to this? How do we fight well? What's, what's kind of the magic number? That's what we all want to know, right? Like, all right, so how, tell me. Just give me the number, Paul. How many times? What's the magic number per week? What do we got to do to fight against the tempter? And this is where I'm going to look to some great theologians of the past. Luther, Martin Luther, great reformer, he said that he found two times a week to be ample protection from the temper, tempter. Humorously saying, this is his quote, not mine, twice a week, 104 years should give neither cause to fear. Straight from the reformer. Another wife, and, pa- and she's a wife of a pastor and author. Her name is Taylor Buzzer. She said, personally, I think the two-time-a-week rule and three-day rule isn't frequent enough. I think aiming for every other day is a healthier range. And I just thought to myself, like, would she say that to Luther? Like, would she tell him, like, I don't think that's good enough, buddy. Like, you need to do a little more. And so what do we have here? Like, oh, man, we have differing opinions. So which one is the right one? We're asking the wrong question already. Why the differing opinions? Because there is no magic number. I can't give you a number and say, you know, talk about this in in small group when you get together. Talk about it if you want, but you're not going to come to a conclusion. Right? This is where it takes communication. You're giving yourselves, not just physically, but in every other way to one another. Give yourselves to one another in talking about this issue. Communicate, and when you come to something, hold it really loosely. Because the idea and the emphasis that Paul is getting here is not you owe me, but I owe you. There's different numbers for different seasons if you have young kids or if you're old. But notice that there's never an exception. Oh, you're young, that's when you you do it a lot. And then when you get older, that's when it stops completely. No, Paul doesn't say that. You're still fighting a tempter. You're still in the battle. It goes on and on as long as you are married. Remember the idea is how you can give, how you can serve, how you can love, not the other way around. There is a number. I don't know that it's fixed, but there is a number. This is what Paul is getting at. It should be happening. And so he doesn't give a number. He gives the principle behind it. He says, this ought to be happening. This is a command from God, a strong command. This has to be happening in marriage to fight against the tempter. But he also says that sex and marriage aren't for everyone. If you look in verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of the other. Paul, Paul is saying, even in verse 7, both marriage and celibacy, these are gifts from God. God has given these things. And so not everyone is to use sexual relations within marriage to fight against temptation. That's for the married. The married people are used to sexual relations to fight against the tempter, to fight against temptation. But the celibate, they're not to do that, obviously. That's not the the way they are to fight. The celibate, they have a different gift, and they're going to have to fight with a different means. 
Each has his own gift. And so one of Paul's points here is that celibacy, that's for the celibate. And if you're married, this is for the married. They're not the same. And he is upholding both of them, saying these are both gifts. He's not holding one up as a higher than the other. He's saying my preference is for celibacy, but he is by no means considering it a holier calling. One has one gift and one has another. And where do gifts come from? According to Paul, clearly they come from God. And so he's not downgrading any of these gifts, whether you're married or celibate, single or married. He says, no, these are gifts from God, and you are to use the means God has given you to fight against temptation within your gift, within your calling that God has given you. And so as we come to the end of this passage, we see in the end, Paul and the Bible have this different view than what we've seen probably likely of sexual relations in marriage. He upholds it and commands it. He says to the married, you need to fight the tempter, fight temptation with the good gift of sexual relations. You need to practice owing the other partner, practice owing them, standing ready to serve them, standing ready to give to them, standing ready to love them. This is the the emphasis that he gives here. He's saying within marriage, you ought to be ready to give not just one another physically, but give your whole lives to one another again and again and again. And this giving of our whole lives to one another, it's a picture of something. Have you caught it? Have you seen it? See, this is a picture of Christ. You see, Christ was the one who wasn't just committed in one way to his bride. Christ was the one who not only came, but gave himself physically, gave himself spiritually, gave himself socially for the good of his people. And so in other words, the the scripture can come and say that Jesus Christ didn't love in deed only. He didn't love in word only. Christ came and he loved in word and deed. He gave up his life for his spouse. He was willing to say, I owe you, I will even give my very physical existence so that you might live. That's the attitude that we're reflecting within our marriages. That's the attitude we're to take as a spouse. Not you owe me, but how can I lay my life down? How can I love? How can I serve? How can I give? So as we come to the end of this passage, may that be the thrust that we hear. May that be what we see from Paul. May we in our marriages display that kind of love, the love the Savior gave, the love of the gospel that says that Christ was willing to go all the way just for the good of his spouse, to give himself physically to death, to a grave, to a cross, so that the spouse might live. If we are redeemed, if we have been bought by that blood that Christ gained for us, then we are to take on that attitude and have that mind that Christ had. Within our marriages, if you're single, you're to have that, we're to be displaying the gospel. May God use our marriages and in our marriages display that kind of love. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thanks that it speaks objective truth, timeless truth. I pray that we wouldn't waffle on it whatsoever, that we would stay on it, not going to the right or to the left. I pray that we would uphold it, that we would see its worth, we'd see its beauty, and that we'd live according to it, knowing that your word is giving us your good, good design for your people So I pray for those who are in the midst of marriages. We know that there's a tempter. We know that the battle is raging. We even know probably many of us from this morning that we are in a fallen, broken world because we are sinful and we have a sinful spouse. And so I want to pray for our marriages, that they'd be healthy, that you would help us fight with the means that you have given us. 
And that in this way, in the realm of sexual relations within our marriage, we would fight in that way to, to, to your glory and for the spouses, for each spouse's good. And I pray for marriages that are suffering, that you would uphold them and sustain them by the kind of love that you have shown us. And may we display that kind of love. I pray for the marriages that have come in with, with all sorts of baggage sexually, with scars and wounds, that you would heal. God, I pray for the single that they would see marriage and sex as good gifts to be experienced within the right context and the right timing, waiting upon you. Not necessarily to be married, but waiting for you to say whatever you want to say to us, sending us wherever you want us to go. May the single people in this room say that. Put their yes in front of you and say, God, you put me where you want me. Father, we thank you that we have a gospel that's true, that Christ came, lived the life we should have lived but could never live, died the death that we deserve to die, taking the price that we deserve for our sin, that we might have eternal life. We thank you that that's true. May that radically shake all who are in this room, married or single. God, we love you so much. Thanks for your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen.